0: Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of Romans, you're going to be looking at Romans 8, verses 12 to 17 today. Romans eight twelve to 17, and I'll ask, as is our tradition, that you stand for the reading of God's word if you're able to do so. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing uh, on his word to us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Thank you for your, your truth that you sanctify us by your word which is true. Thank you for the way that it exposes our sins even now, for the way that it points us to Christ as the the Savior of our sins, the Savior of us from all all of our sins. We thank you for the way you you build up your people by it, and that you save the lost uh, by your Spirit working through it. And we ask that you would work in us by your Spirit even now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, um, we don't often uh, do topical preaching here. Uh, We typically go through a book and go all the way through a book from start to finish, and we are still doing that. We are still going to finish the book of Mark. I haven't abandoned the gospel of Mark uh, right now. Uh, But to start the new year, as we sometimes do, uh, we spend a little bit of time in something of a topical study that still is, we stick with a text, but we might use a different text from week to week. Last Sunday, if you were here, you, you'll know that we, we spent time in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. And that verse tells us to strive for, or if you have a New King James, to pursue holiness. So the topic we've been looking at is holiness or sanctification. It's also called, and in that, that passage in Hebrews 12, if you, if you know the verse, the passage there, the, the metaphor that, that the writer of the book of Hebrews used to describe this, the Christian life the life of sanctification and holiness, the metaphor he used there was that of a race. Was it was a race. Remember Hebrews 12, one, it says there that uh, the writer says, let us also, and when he says also, he means like that great cloud of, cloud of witnesses that we just talked about in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and what does he say there, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life, in, in many ways, is like a race. The life of holiness and seeking after holiness in Christ, it's much like a race. And it's much more like a marathon than it is a sprint. We, we don't run marathons, too many of us, but it, the Christian life is much more like a long-distance race than a short 100-meter, uh, you're-done-and-it's-over know, you're kind of kind of race. Well, the writer of Hebrews, as we saw last week, What did he say in in verse 14? He said, without holiness, what? No one will see the Lord. So among other things, what is he telling us there? He's telling us that that holiness is necessary. You have to be careful how you understand the the way of that necessity, how it's necessary. But the writer of Hebrews made clear, the scripture makes clear, uh, of the necessity of holiness in the lives of God's people. Now, we don't earn the right to see the Lord by our holiness, do we? That is not what Hebrews 12:14 would have us to understand or believe. We don't earn the right to see the Lord by means of holiness, uh, but that doesn't make holiness unnecessary. It doesn't make holiness optional for the Christian. Holiness does not earn heaven in any way, shape, or form, but holiness is most certainly the path by which we walk upon our way to heaven. It is the path. It is the path that we walk on our way to seeing the Lord. Well, our text here in Romans 8 deals with much the same subject, even if in a slightly different way. But we're going to see some of the same emphases involved. And he uses a different analogy here than, he does, than, the, than the writer of Hebrews does there in chapter 12, doesn't he? What, what's the metaphor Paul uses here? It's not a race. It's a, it's a fight. It's, and it's not just, uh, you know, sometimes you think of, of fighting. Um, what does he say there? He says in verse 13, he tells us to put to death or to mortify, put to death the deeds of the body. Now, mortify is one of those words that we don't use much. And when we do use it, we think of it in terms of embarrassment. You know, if you, your, your socks don't match and someone notices or your hair is out of place, you I'm mortified. you might be mortified We're use that word now but you might be mortified or embarrassed what's well, not he's saying he's not saying embarrass the deeds of your body he says put to death the deeds of the body mortification like a mortician we get the same the same root we get that word from it means to it, it's an idea of death it's put to death the deeds of the body and so the kind of fight that Paul has in mind in Romans 8 it's not shadow boxing it's not sparring you know if you've ever taken up uh, martial arts or boxing you'll know even uh, Ben is taking karate and he has sparring gear you know he has a, a thing for his head yeah, headgear gloves things for his feet things to keep you from getting injured because you're getting kicked and punched and they don't actually want you to get hurt in practice right um, it's it's not supposed to be a real a real fight well that's not what Paul's talking about here Paul's talking about a fight to the death Paul's talking about no holds barred no sparring gear no protective equipment whatsoever no uh, no soft uh, gloves to, to soften the blow uh, of, of the punches uh, think of it kind of in terms of the Roman Colosseum and the gladiators now typically uh, one, one left on his feet and one did not uh, it's, it's a matter of being fighting to the death and we are to put to death the deeds of the body we are to be utterly ruthless with our own sins those who have received mercy from God in Jesus Christ must be merciless with our own sins. That's the message of of Romans eight, thirteen. It's much like what Jesus said. You know, if an eye offend thee, what, do you, what does he say to do? Pluck it out. Why? So it's better. I'm paraphrasing. It's better for you to go to heaven missing a missing a part. You won't really be missing a part. Uh, than, than to go to hell with a whole, with the whole body. I mean, he's not saying you know cut your hand off, pluck your eye out, literally. He's saying, even if that's what it took to fight against your sin, you do it. No price is too great to pay. It brings to mind uh, what's probably the most familiar quote. If you've ever read any of the Puritan writers, you, might, you probably know who John Owen uh, is. I say is because he's with the Lord. He's not gone. Uh, and he wrote uh, his one of his probably his most familiar quote is this. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you always be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that quote is from what's probably his best known work. I I stole the sermon title from it, The Mortification of Sin. Now, John Owen can be difficult to say the least to read. Anytime I want to humble myself, and I'm in need of that at times, I'll pull a a book of John Owen off the shelf and try to read it. Uh, I'm I'm one of those dense people that likes to read those little condensed versions, the Puritan paperbacks. Uh, And there is one on The Mortification of Sin as well, And as hard as some of his writings are to read, let me recommend it to you. This one is not. The Mortification of Sin, you could read through in a day, easily. And it's written for that kind of a purpose. It was actually written, from what I understand, for teenagers. It wasn't written for the academic uh, who's sitting up in his ivory tower somewhere, because the topic is a needful topic for young and old alike. Now, it's been said that 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 book, The Mortification of Sin is essentially an exposition and application of this one verse of Romans 8.13. That's the main text we're going to look at from our passage this morning. So Owen's little book, which I do recommend that you, you pick up and read, uh, he derived both the title and the content of that little book uh, from our sermon text, Romans 8.13. 8, now, mortification, an unused word in our day, it's, it's what Paul is talking about again when he says we have to put to death the deeds of, of the body. Now, you might know if you know your shorter catechism that the uh, question thirty-five. It gives you know what is question thirty-five? What is sanctification? That big ten-dollar theological word. But uh, this this is what sanctification is. Now listen for a Romans eighteen. Or, uh, Romans eight. Better not be a Romans eighteen, 18 right? Uh, listen for a phrase that rings a bell from Romans eight thirteen. In question thirty-five the shorter catechism, it says that sanctification. It, it tells us there is. Is the work of God's free grace in renewing us after the image of God, so that quote, we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. He's talking about sanctification here in Romans eight, thirteen. Now, just like we saw last week with Hebrews chapter twelve, verse fourteen, verse thirteen also here, Paul makes clear the necessity of holiness and mortification. It's not an optional thing for Christians. It's not something you can take or leave as you see fit as we're going to see as we get into our text. Um, now, how? It's one thing to say, put to death the deeds of the body. Okay, Paul, how? How am I supposed to do that? Have you met me? Do you know uh, what kind of person I am? I don't, I'm, not, I'm not that holy. How are, how are you and I to put to death the deeds of the body? Well, Paul says it's only what? In verse 13, by the Spirit. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we can do this. Apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no such thing as true mortification of sin. Apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no sanctification. None of us are adequate or capable of sanctification on our own. The spirit of holiness, as he is often called, is the one that must renew us and is the one that must enable us, as the catechism says, to die more and more unto sin, and live more and more unto righteousness. So we're going to see three things at least today, maybe more, but three for sure, from our text. The first thing we're going to see is the definition, the definition which we've sort of touched on already, the definition of mortification. The second thing we're going to see is the necessity of mortification of our sins. And the third thing we're going to see, maybe the most important thing we're going to see today, is the agent the agent of mortification or sanctification. So the first thing is uh, something I probably I somewhat failed to do last week uh, is, is define your terms. It's always important to define our terms. We're all talking about the same thing. We're all on the same page. Sometimes you hear a word that someone says and you're thinking of something totally different than what they're intending by it. That, that can be a dangerous thing. So uh, what we're going to see is what does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? What, is it, what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean uh, to be sanctified? Well, I I mentioned it somewhat uh, abbreviated fashion. Westminster Shorter Catechism 35, question 35. This is the full answer to the question of what is sanctification. It is the work of God's free grace. The work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That dying unto sin is what Paul is speaking of here in our text in verse 13. So to be holy, what is it to be holy? What is the holiness that you and I are to pursue and to put to death our, our, our sins? To be holy is to be set apart for God by God. To be set apart for God, for his own purposes, for himself, by God, and that is demonstrated in how we live. It's not just how you live. Remember, you're renewed by the Holy Spirit in the whole man after the image of God. So your, your, your inner workings, your heart, your mind, your impulses, your, your, your aspirations, all of that, your whole nature is changed in a very real way. So to be holy is to be set apart for God by God. Now notice that sanctification, while it involves effort on our part, that can be often overlooked. It, it, Paul doesn't say, sit back and watch God put to death the deeds of your body. He doesn't say let go and let God. The writer of Hebrews didn't say sit back and watch peace with all men and holiness happen. He says pursue it. Right? Pursue it. Strive after it. Well Paul here says put you, you put to death the deeds of the body. But he doesn't say do it on your own, which we're going to see in our third, our third point. It, an, it involves effort on your part to be sanctified. But at the same time what does the catechism say? It's the work of The ongoing work of what? God's free grace. You are sanctified, just as you are justified, by grace alone. Not without your your effort. God doesn't let you sit back and do nothing, but it's not anything that you earn. Sanctification, in other words, holiness, mortification of sin, is the gift of God. When it says it's of his free grace, that's what he's saying. It's a gift. It's something given to you. Sanctification is a blessing and a benefit to be enjoyed. It's a blessing and a benefit that you have in Christ. In other words, sanctification, just like justification, forgiveness, adoption, and all that, is every bit a part of the salvation that we have from sin that we have in Christ alone as all those other things that we have. Justification, adoption, even glorification. That's an important thing to keep in mind that we often, I think, lose sight of. God not only elects from eternity past whom he's going to save, he not only elects, he not only calls, he not only justifies, he not only adopts us in Christ, but he also sanctifies his people in Christ before finally bringing us to glory with him forever in heaven. In fact, uh, Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan writer, has said, I think very helpfully, that that sanctification is glorification in seed form. In other words, it's the beginnings of what you're going to be. It's you becoming what you're already going to be in heaven one day. It's the beginnings of it. It's glorification in seed form. And I think that many of many of our failures and struggles in in, in our in our efforts at sanctification. I think they arise very often from thinking of it in the wrong terms, from not understanding what it is and how God brings it to pass in our lives. I think often, too often, maybe it's the way that the word is preached incorrectly or taught incorrectly, uh, but I think very often we think of sanctification wrongly. We think of it as a burden to bear. We think of it as a burden to bear rather than a blessing to enjoy. We think of it as somehow earning our place with God rather than as a gift given to us from our Heavenly Father. We think of it as a burden and not as the fruit of the spirit of adoption that God has given us. It's a blessing, not a burden. And so if we think of it as a burden, we've gotten off on the wrong foot. And we're making it twice as difficult as it already is to be sanctified. Notice also that Paul specifically says in verse thirteen that we are to sanctify or excuse me, we are to mortify what? The deeds of the body. Now why does he why does he say that? I think what he's trying to make clear to us that I think we, we often easily overlook is it's really it really is our sins he has in mind here. He's talking about the way we live. That's what he has in mind. Not just our emotions, not just our experiences. And things like that. You know, when we, we talk about the Holy Spirit, which we're going to see later on in our text, we, we often, I think, think of all the wrong things. We think of, you know, we think of experience, we think of emotion, we think of all these things. And, and Paul says, you know, sanctification, a good part of it resides in putting to death the deeds of the body, the sins uh, that, that, that would, as Hebrews say, cling so closely and trip us up in our, in our race. Uh, now he mentions the body. Why does he mention the body? Is the body sinful? Is your body sinful? You know, every January first you you make resolutions because you think it is, right? You think your body there's definitely something wrong with it. Uh, no, he mentions the body not because your body is somehow inherently evil. Your physical body is not evil. Jesus died to redeem you, body and soul. In heaven, after Christ returns and the resurrection of the dead and he calls his people out of the grave, you're going to have a glorified body, but you're going to have a body in heaven. You're not going to cease to be physical on the last day. He mentions the body because uh, the body is what we do most of our sinning with. Frankly, we sin in our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, for sure. But a lot of the sins that we commit are done with our body. Our body is sometimes the vehicle, so to speak, of our sinning. And so he doesn't, he doesn't say he put to death the deeds of the body because he has a low view of, of the sins of the heart or the sins of our thinking, our thoughts and affections. But I think Paul is making it plain. It's the actual practice of sin that he has in mind that we have to put to death. Now, the Greek word for deeds, if you have the ESV when it talks about the deeds of the body, um, it really does convey the idea of a practice or a settled habit of life. Paul's not talking about the occasional sin here and there that we're all going to do until the day we're with the Lord. He's talking about a, a way of life, a settled way of life that is characterized by sin and disobedience. This is what the, the Apostle John says or has in mind in a very similar way in 1 John chapter three, First John three verses four through ten. It's a long quote, but uh, bear with me as I read it. 1 John three four to ten, he says. Everyone, John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, is John saying you're supposed to be perfectly sinless or that you should ever expect to be perfectly sinless in this life? No. What does he say in chapter 1? If we say we have no sin, we lie. You know, you're lying and the truth is not in us. We make God a liar. So John John, nowhere says, okay, Christians, now you know, real Christians don't sin. It's not what he's saying. One of the be- best promises we have in the scriptures in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, what? I mean, if you sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Even after you come to Christ... The Lord's Prayer teaches us better, doesn't it? Forgive us our debts. We're to pray that on a regular basis together. Well, that must mean we are still we still have debt of sin, in a sense. We still go on sinning in some sense. But there's a difference between struggling with sin, as I said last week, and living in sin. There's a difference between struggling against your sin, fighting, putting, putting it to death, seeking to put it to death, and being at home in one's sin. A Christian is never at home in sin. You may struggle with sin, but you're never at home in it. And so I think John is saying much the same thing that Paul is saying here in our text, uh, there in in 1 John chapter 3. So sanctification, living a life that is set apart for God or devoted to God, uh, what does John, and we're going to see Paul say, it's a matter of family likeness. The spirit of adoption, Paul says in Romans 8, is one of the reasons that you won't make it a practice of sin, as John says. And what does John even say? He says there at the end of that text, By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. And what's the difference? Family likeness. Those who go on living in sin, they're living, they're showing the likeness of their true father. And who is their father? The devil. In the old saying, there's two kinds of people in this world. Uh, that's what the message of the Bible, in, in many ways is sanctification is a matter of family likeness That's the consistent testimony of scripture from old to new testament holiness is a matter of reflecting the image of our heavenly father and what does Paul say in verse 14 of our text that's what he's really saying he says all who are led by the spirit of God are what? sons of God family likeness in this life it will not involve sinless perfection in any one of us We will not know the blessedness of sinless perfection until the Lord comes or calls. When you are at home with the Lord, one of the many blessings that that entails is sinlessness. You will no longer struggle with sin ever again. You will no longer be troubled by the presence of sin in your own heart or in anyone else when you're at home with the Lord. But for the Christian, sin no longer rules over us. Sin no longer rules over you. It troubles you, but it does not rule over you. And so our lifestyle will no longer be characterized by the ongoing practice of sin. And so, what does Paul say? Live like it. Put your sinful practices, put your deeds of your body to death. Live like you've won that war already that Christ has won on our behalf. Well, that leads us to the necessity of mortification. The necessity of mortification. Look again at verses 12 to 13 in our text. He says, So then, brothers, We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what's he saying there? We are debtors, but not to the flesh. We don't owe it to the flesh to live according to it any longer. But we are debtors, aren't we? What are we, who I should say, are we debtors to? We do have an obligation to someone, but it's not our flesh. Our obligation is to the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer in Jesus Christ. We do have an obligation. Uh, Verse 12, John Calvin says this. He says, Paul's sentence here in verse 12 is defective. Give Give him a second. His sentence here is defective for he omits the other part of his contrast, that is, that we are debtors to the Spirit. The meaning, however, is in no way obscure. So Calvin's not saying that Paul doesn't know how to write. Calvin is saying that Paul's statement is we, we would say it's elliptical. There's a dot 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 that's unspoken, but this should be clear from the text. We aren't debtors to the flesh. We are debtors to the Spirit that indwells us. The Spirit of holiness. Now that necessity of mortification that, that we're seeing in our text, it's put even more forcefully in, in verse thirteen. Where he says, what does he say there? If you live according to the flesh, if you go on and on according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a warning and a promise, isn't it? In a very real way. and It's a, it's a serious warning and we should take it to heart. Uh, James Boyce says the following of, of Paul's words there. He says, uh, may I put it bluntly again. Paul is saying that if you live like a non-Christian... Dominated by your sinful nature rather than living according to the Holy Spirit, you will perish like a non-Christian because you are a non-Christian. Puts it as plain as you can possibly put it in the English language. The old saying, "If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, what is it? It's a duck." He's saying if you if you live that way, you're showing that you really aren't a Christian to begin with. Again, that is not he's not talking about that you struggle with sin. He's not talking about that you still do sin. He's talking about someone living completely dominated by sin and the flesh. Calvin, uh, so nice I quote him twice, puts it this way. He says, it is indeed true that we are justified in Christ by the mercy of God alone. But it is equally true and certain that all who are justified are called by the Lord to live worthy of their vocation, of their calling." Let believers, therefore, learn to embrace him, embrace Christ. Let believers, therefore, learn to embrace him, not only for justification, but also for sanctification, as he, as he has been given to us for both these purposes, that they may not rend him asunder by their own mutilated faith. It's a strange picture to say. But he's saying that those who come to Christ only for forgiveness, with no thought to sanctification, It's as if you're ripping Christ in half by your mutilated faith. That's not saving faith, he's saying. That is an unbiblical version, a twisting of faith. It's it's as if you're trying to rend Christ asunder. I want this part, not this part. But he died to secure all of those things for us, not just the one and not the other. We embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith as he is offered to us in the gospel For what? For salvation from sin, not just salvation from its penalty, although it certainly includes that. The song we just sang, No Condemnation, Now I Dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. You were singing the gospel to yourself, even if you didn't realize it. The gospel calls you and me to believe in Christ, but not just to believe in part of him. Not just to believe in one of his offices, so-called, and not another. That's a mutilated faith in a divided Christ that saves no one. Such faith is no real saving faith at all. John Murray, last quote I think, uh, John Murray adds this helpful word. He says, the believer's once for all death to the law and to sin in Christ. The believer's once for all death to the law and to sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. Only a Christian can mortify sin because only a Christian has the Holy Spirit living within you and it's again it's a blessing not a burden to do so and that brings us to the third and final thing we see in our text and that is the agent the agent of mortification I was going to say source but that sounds like it could be impersonal and he is no impersonal force how is it that you and I are to put to death the deeds of the body what does Paul tell you by the Spirit, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in you, if you're a believer this morning, is the agent of mortification or sanctification in your life. He alone is the one who enables us, as our catechism says, more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And so the man without the Holy Spirit cannot mortify sin. Mortifying sin is the work of believers and believers alone. Mortifying sin is the work of believers in Jesus Christ, because only they have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, what you must do is not mortify your sins at present. What you must do is repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. Then and only then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you can begin to mortify your sin, your deeds of the flesh, of the body. Now, I know that, um, at least I know for myself, I can't confess someone else's sin, but we preachers have a tendency to sometimes be uh, hyperbolic and to make overstatements for for emphasis. I know I'm as guilty of that as some as others. Um, But I honestly believe there might not be a more important and yet more neglected thing, a subject of study in Reformed churches at least, than ours, uh, churches like ours, than the subject of the Holy Spirit and his work in our salvation. Any number of things you can say that about, but I, I believe at our, in our time, in our place, at least in reformed churches. And um, why is that? You know, maybe sometimes we're so afraid of being lumped in with kind of the, the excesses of the Pentecostal movement that we're almost gun shy of bringing up the Holy Spirit. Never let that keep you from a, a robust study, understanding, and even conversation about the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, I can't say that enough. I think that's, that is one of the great needs in our time, especially in our kind of, in, our, in reformed churches such as, as ours. Um, look, look at the scriptures. I won't point you to a number of texts right now, but look at the scriptures and see how often the writers in both the Old and the New Testament speak of the Holy Spirit and speak of his role in our salvation. Look at Romans 8. The Holy Spirit is all throughout Romans 8. When you think about your, when you think of Romans eight, what do you think of? I don't know what you think of. I think of the security of your salvation, the assurance of your salvation that that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ, the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Why is that? Why can nothing separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord? One one of the reasons Paul gives is the intercession of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part is one of the main reasons why you can never lose. Your salvation. Look all through Romans 8, look in your Old and New Testaments, the scripture is clear on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Look at the great ecumenical creeds that we recite every first Sunday of the month, the Apostles' Creed, we're going to study it tonight, the Nicene Creed. Look how they are outlined by the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look how the Nicene Creed tells us that the Holy Spirit is, quote, the Lord and giver of life. What do they mean by the giver of life? Well, I think the main thing they're talking about is bring life from the dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the Lord and giver of life. And what else does it say? That the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son, is worshipped and glorified. He's God, the third person of the Trinity. He is every bit as much God, very God, as the Father and as the Son himself is. Look to our confessional documents. The Westminster, in our case, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Larger Catechism, Confession of Faith, you'll find the Holy Spirit in His work in your salvation and mine mentioned over and over and over again. It is the Holy Spirit who unites us to, to Christ by faith in our effectual calling, and so applies to us all of the benefits of the redemption that were purchased for us by Christ through His cross. How are you united to Christ? How are all the benefits that Christ purchased for you in his death and resurrection applied to you, the Holy Spirit? How are you made alive from the dead so that you can believe in the first place, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, Paul, Paul sums up uh, the whole thing by saying, in a sense, in verse 14, he says, For all who are led, this is really what he's saying, this is kind of the heart of his argument here, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of of God. Now, if you take that in a vacuum, which you shouldn't do, you've got to be careful to keep it in context, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Lots of people talk about being led by the Spirit of God, or led by the Spirit, or being spiritual. What does it look like? What does the Bible actually say that it looks like? Well, what, what Paul would say is that the Spirit's leading, uh, so-called, is primarily a matter of leading us more and more into holiness. The Spirit leads us more and more into mortification of our sins, mortification of the deeds, the sinful deeds of, of the body. You know, people often pray for the Spirit's leading. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But the Spirit's leading in the lives of believers, first and foremost, is characterized by leading us to die more and more unto sin and to live more and more unto righteousness in Christ does this what does it look like to be a spiritual person well that's it it is not a matter of speaking in tongues or having some kind of ecstatic experience it is not a matter of, primarily of emotions nothing wrong with emotions we don't want to be the frozen chosen right we, it's okay to have emotion emotions are fine God gave it to, to give them to you for a reason but holiness the spirit of holiness as he is called in scripture that is his main influence he leads you to Christ Keeps you abiding in Christ and makes you grow in holiness in Christ. That is His primary work in your life. He seals you unto the day of redemption. And one of the mark, what does a seal do? It does a lot of things, but one of the things it does, it leaves a mark. It leaves a mark of, of the signet ring, so to speak. Well, what's the mark of the signet ring that the Spirit of Holiness puts upon you? It's holiness. That's His imprint in your life. So, such leading. Uh, of the spirit in our lives, uh, Paul says, is evidence of our adoption as sons. How do you know you're a son of God, a child of God? This is one of the main reasons he gives. It's those who are led by the spirit to put to death the deeds of the body that show evidence of their adoption as sons. They show, you show your family resemblance. Again, it's a matter of family resemblance. You give evidence of your adoption as a child of God through faith in Christ. By holiness. What a blessing that is, or at least it should be. What assurance of salvation, what assurance and peace and joy and growth and grace that you and I experienced when we were growing in holiness and sanctification by the Spirit. Those are the benefits that come alongside of justification and sanctification and even our adoption. No wonder that the scripture tells us to be filled with, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And we're even encouraged in Luke 11 to pray for an increase of the Spirit's work in us. Christ says there, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, no offense, right? If you're evil, and you, you even care about your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. He's not saying that if you're a Christian, you might not have the Holy Spirit. If, you're, if, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is not His. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, whether you know it or not, indwelling within you, sealing you for the day of redemption, sanctifying you, leading you, as Romans 8 uh, 13 and 14 and following says. Uh, But one of the things that we were encouraged to pray for is that God would pour out his spirit upon us more. We we pray for lots of things. I'm guessing we don't, I include myself, we don't often pray for that. We don't often pray as much as we should for him, that God would give us his Holy Spirit to those who ask him. May God work in you and I by his Holy Spirit, even now that we might grow in holiness and the likeness of Jesus Christ, to his glory and his glory alone. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are not saved by our holiness. For who among us could stand? If you were to number our sins, who among us, even now, as, holy as the holiest among us may be, none of us could stand. We thank you that we stand before you, a holy God, clothed in the righteousness of your Son alone. But we thank you that you don't just save us from the penalty of our sin, but you save us from its power. That you free us, just as you freed the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, that they might go worship and serve you wherever you led them. That even now you, you have freed us from sin. Sin shall no longer have dominion over us. For if we were in Christ, we are under grace and not under sin, not under the law as the old man. And we thank you for that. We ask that you would give us your spirit as your son even tells us to pray. Give us your son, give us grace to be praying for that, that you would help each one of us here that knows you to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, and so evidence, not to you, but to ourselves, to, to our growth of assurance and peace and joy in Christ, that we would evidence our adoption as sons because of the spirit of adoption within us, that you would make your spirit within us cry out even more, Abba, Father, that we might grow in joy and have the joy of the Lord as our strength. And we do pray that if anyone here does not yet know you and is yet still in their sins, that you might be, by your grace and mercy, grant repentance and faith in Christ. Give them salvation even today, that they might repent from their sin, turn to him and have life in his name, and then walk in newness of life to glory of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.